Before to start with this episode, I just wanted to remind you that Easy Medical Device do have its own shop now. So don't hesitate to go and to find some templates uh, related to the medical device regulation uh, or uh, also some coaching session that I'm offering. Okay, so let's start now with this episode. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. I am Munir Lazuzi, a medical device expert specialized on quality and regulatory affairs. My mission is to help you learn how to place a compliant medical device on the market. For that, I'll share with you my experience and the one of others on this podcast. Are you ready for your dose of regulation and standard today? Okay, so let the show begin. Welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Here is Munir Lazuzi from easymedicaldevice.com. And today we will go to the US and we have with me, uh, I have with me uh, Michelle Lott, uh, which is the principal and founder of uh, Linraka. Uh, we had Michelle previously uh, where we discussed again about uh, some, uh, some products, how to register your products in the US. Uh, so you can see the episode and I will put the episode somewhere, uh, somewhere here on the link on the show notes. Uh, so, Michelle, welcome to the Medical Device Made Easy podcast. Hi, Manir. Thanks for having me back. I really enjoyed the experience last time. Great. So, Michelle, uh, we will uh, talk specifically this time about the 510K process uh, that is used in the U.S. to register the products. Uh, and I ask you if you can help us to understand how this process is working, what it is, how it is working, and maybe some hints or some, uh, some, um, some tips for people that want to register their products to the U.S. Uh, so, but first, can you just quickly introduce yourself again for people that uh, haven't followed your episode last time? Um, sure. My name is Michelle, of course. Um, I own Lenari QA, and we specialize in helping primarily startups and small businesses navigate this uh, tangled regulatory landscape for both the uh, EU, US markets, Canada, and some OUS as well. Um, but I'm really passionate about helping um, small companies because otherwise you just can wander around in the regulations and, and not come out the right side of them. <laughs> no, it's clear. So yeah, I, I enjoy the same thing. So really helping uh, small manufacturers that are uh, really in trouble and wanting some support. So it's really, uh, really enjoyable to have that. Um, okay. So let's now go to the topic. So we, um, I had some, some questions about people that were saying, how can I register my products to the U.S.? Uh, and specifically through the 510K, which is one of the most famous one, one of the most famous process, if I can say. Um, so, um, Michelle, can you help us to understand or can you help the audience to understand what is the 510K process? And then we can go to more uh, in-depth uh, information about it. Sure. So, as you know, the FDA has um, three categories of devices. Class one is low risk. Class two is kind of low to moderate. And then class three. Um, the, the class two devices are the ones that, that predominantly require 510Ks. There's a handful of class ones that require 510Ks and a handful of class threes that require a 510K instead of a PMA. Um, so you always have to know where those nuances are. But for um, the, all practical purposes, a 510K is how you bring a class two low to moderate risk uh, device to market. And there, there are a couple of different types of 510Ks that you can accomplish that through. Yeah, uh, I think we talked also during um, on our last episode about the product code that can help you to define the class of your product and also if you need a 510K or not for, for that. So this is something also that people can get from the, from the last, uh, last episode. Um, uh, exactly. 
I always start my regulatory pathway analysis with knowing that three-digit product code because that tells me intended use regulations that's governed by types of submissions that is, is applicable, recognized consensus standards, which we'll talk about in a little bit. It's really just kind of your, your whole map to your submission process. Yeah. So uh, just maybe a question from my side. Is there any meaning to the, word, to the term 510K? Is there something special for that? Or it's just an incremental number that U.S. is using? Um, it actually refers to the element of the Code of Federal Regulations. So that's like if, if that's actually the regulation number. It's 510K part, 510 part K, you okay. know, with the parentheses. So, so it, it refers to the actual uh, regulation that governs that process. Okay. Um, so, and this is specific to medical devices? Yes. Okay. Um, we have then uh, the 510K, which is uh, a process where manufacturers can put the product, their products on the U.S. market. Um, is there some, uh, I mean, can everybody use that or is there some things that they have to consider before going through that? Because um, I think there is a lot of people that say, yes, I will go and register my product to the U.S. and I have to go through a 510K, but maybe they are wrong. Maybe they, they, they should go through something else. So is there something that um, they have to consider to say, my competitor registered or cleared their product through a 510K? I can do the same, but maybe no, they cannot because it's not really the same product. Yeah. Um, so put that example to the side for a little bit. I have clients that have essentially class one devices and for whatever reason they have in their head that they want to do a 510k exactly. for, for whatever reason I'm like no it, it's a class one device you have to have a product code that already exists that says it requires a 510k or you have to be um, technologically above and beyond the exemptions that FDA has created for that pro for that class one product code that's 510K exempt, you have to have either a new intended use or use a radically new technology to be able to submit a 510K on a product where the regulation doesn't require a 510K. You can't just go and do one. Okay. Um, and then similarly, you know, if you know, 510K is based on substantial equivalence. Yeah. If yeah. you've taken a product and added a new enough indication that, that nobody else has clearance for that indication, even though that product might be cleared under a 510K, there's a possibility that that indication could make it a de novo and make it require clinical data. Um, similarly, if you take a device that may have not had software, uh, been software driven before and you add software and there's no predicate and it introduces new concerns about safety, that also could take it into uh, a de novo space instead of a 510k. So, um, but, but to your your example, if you have a competitor that already has a 510k, that kind of presumes that there's a product code that exists that says here's the scope of of how we define this device, and if you fit the scope, you could do a 510k. So uh, it means that also if you have a competitor that went first and has a 510k, you can a bit of steal his information to do the same job. Instead of trying to find the code, instead of trying to find a lot of things, you can do copy what he was doing. Uh, to, to a point, you know, it, it's a good place to start with what your competitors are doing, but you have to be very aware 
of how you are technologically different, you know, including marketing claims perhaps, to, to make sure you're not going above and beyond um, what the FDA intended to be covered by that product code. Okay, good point. Um, mm-hmm. So during our discussion, we also discussed about different types of 510K. So when a manufacturer goes to the US and wants to register its products, which, which 510K has to go through? Yeah, so there are three types of 510Ks. You've got, uh, and they're all kind of independent pathways to get to market. You've got traditional 510K, um, which makes up the bulk of, of, of the submissions. Um, you're there, you're relying on a combination of uh, predicate comparison discussions for substantial equivalence, uh, various recognized consens- co- consensus standards, um, and, and it's, it's, it's a very comprehensive approach to doing the 510K. It's how most devices come to market. So yeah, it's, it's your entrance door to arrive to the US market. You have to start by your traditional 510K. Not necessarily. You could also go with an abbreviated 510K. So, so if you have a product that's not cleared in the U.S. yet, you've got two options, traditional and abbreviated. And in abbreviated, you now have like uh, abbreviated one and abbreviated two type mm-hmm. options that the FDA just, just finalized at the end of last year. So an abbreviated 510K differs from a tr- traditional where you are really relying on recognized consensus standards, guidance documents, um, some other type of special controls that the FDA has defined that, that you use as a point of comparison in lieu to a comprehensive predicate discussion. Okay. Uh, so then um, when you have those two ways, is there a difference or so in the terms of the timing to get to the U.S. market? So is there some kind of, uh, um, is it a one-year process? Is it a six-month process? So is there some, some regulated times for that? Uh, I, I need to double-check what the timeframes are for abbreviated 510Ks. I know uh, traditional, they, the FDA review clock is supposedly around 90 days. Okay. I believe it's the same for abbreviated it's just your review is supposed to be a little bit more efficient and a little bit more objective because you're going against a recognized standard instead of a discussion about how you're similar or different to another product. Um, but I think both of those are 90 days. Okay. The special 510K that we're going to talk about in a minute, I think, is 60 days. So when we are talking about 90 days, uh, on my, if I remember well, when I submitted my 510K, it was kind of a notification. It means that I submit the information, and if I don't hear anything from the FDA after 90 days, it means that it's fine. Is it still correct? or No. No, you, you have to get a formal letter from the FDA okay. that either has a list of what they call additional information, where they, they requesting your the final line uh, things to close out the 510K, or you get a letter that says, we have determined that you are substantially equivalent to other devices on the market. Okay, so yeah, there is, uh, so without this, you can, you have to wait and you have to, to do that. Um, so is it, um, is there a kind of a, a legal, this time of 90 days is a legal time, they have to answer to you by 90 days or, Usually, they maybe take more time because it's, uh, there is some delay on the, on the administrative process. It's the FDA. They don't have to do anything. Okay. Um, 
their their funding is tied, you know, those are their metrics that they tie towards the user fees. So they, my experience though in the last year is that they have been really good at hitting their, uh, you know, you get the initial feedback in 60 days and the final review is supposed to be done in 90. And they've been really good about hitting that 60 day mark almost to the day. Um, and if not, it's within a day or two. And they've been very consistent about hitting that final 90 days uh, as well, or at least being communicative in the process. Okay, so good. So within three months, uh, we can expect that our products can be registered if we have done everything correct on our, on our documentation. Um, yeah, I, I always tell clients that they really need to prepare between five and six months total for that process because three months would assume that the FDA doesn't come back with any substantial additional information that you have to, you know, analyze or do additional testing or might make a justification for that would eat up some clock time. So really, by the time you go back and forth with the agency, you need to be prepared for five, six months. Okay. Unless you've done all the testing to all the things you think FDA could expect so they can just check their boxes and don't have to ask you any questions. I think, I think if we are using experts like yourself or people that are really have done that many times, uh, it can be taking really um, less, less questions if I can say from, from the FDA so, so that it can go, go faster. So, you know, Monir, that's something that's really interesting um, in terms of discussions I have with my clients is because the, the strategy for how much data you put in the submission can really be uh, based on the risk tolerance of the client. Like, if they, if they really are focused on, hey, I want this done in three months, then, boy, you really need to, like, you know, dot all your I's and cross all your T's and do every test that we can think of. But if you don't have that kind of money or time to take in the testing, then they may take some risks that the FDA may ask for something and let's see if they do. Okay. And then we'll cross that bridge later. It's, it's a bet betting that maybe they will never ask a question about that and uh, waiting, crossing their fingers and everything. So yeah, two different strategies as you are mentioning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the last one, we have the special 510K. What is this beast? So a special 510K means that you already have a device that has been cleared in the U.S. through the 510K process, um, through either traditional or abbreviated, and that you are making a specific and limited number of changes to that device that fall within the scope of what's allowed for changes in a special 510K. Um, and, and so you already own the, the device, it's of limited scope and of a specific type of change that's eligible for this, the special 510K. You may have to do testing, but you only include test summaries or declarations of conformity. The FDA is not doing an in-depth technical review. They're just saying, yes, these changes are, are adequate and were adequately tested and supported. Is there, um, is there a list of the changes that requires this special 510K or any changes that was done to the 510K has to be submitted through that? Through that? Um, so there is a list of changes that FDA, um, it's Q4 last year, I think September, October, um, 
provided a guidance document that clarified those. And I, I call this regulatory math. You know, are you familiar with like if then statements from yeah. your <laughs> geometry or college? Exactly. <laughs> so it's like a special 510K to be eligible to submit one. The proposed change has to be, um, you have to own the, the, the device. Uh, we just talked about that. Then um, the performance data are unnecessary. So you don't have to, it, you shouldn't have to turn in a comprehensive performance data. Or if you do, it's something that, that is done to a, a well-established test method where you could submit a DOC or a summary table instead of the performance data. Um, and then, then everything that, that you need to discuss can be um, reviewed in a summary or a risk analysis format. And if you can check those three boxes, then your device might be appropriate for a 510K. Okay. So um, I think, yeah, this, this is something that, uh, as you mentioned, is taking 60 days. So it means that as soon as you submit that, um, they would review quickly because they are not reviewing the full dossier, or um, the full product, they are reviewing just the changes. So it can take less time for, for doing that. So it's the same. You have to wait for their letter or document to say, yes, we reviewed and it's fine. Is it correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, when they did this pilot program last year and compared it to the numbers for the previous year, um, the, the average FDA cleared time for special 510Ks was uh, 43 days instead of the 60 that they had. Okay. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good number. So, um, I think, yeah, there, are, there, there is, it's, it's really a process that is um, really interesting. It was also a process, I think it's a process that is the 510K process. I mean, it's under change, I think, by the FDA. They are starting to review it and to make, try to make some updates. So, are they doing that, um, if I can say, frequently, or it's like a wave that they are doing every 10 years? Or Because I think it's an old process. It's, something that, it's not something that is existing just few years ago, it's really an old process. Right. It, uh, it, it is a very old process. They have tried to consistently update it, um, especially after 21, 21st century cures came along. It really mandated and put a burden on FDA to, to really look at all of their processes and determine if they really are the least burdensome um, on, on industry and on the FDA reviewers. Um, and if there are other paradigms, if you will, that we can establish for reviewing data that will make it easier and less subjective for reviewers and for industry. Like where can we get a, a more standard, a standardized set of, set of requirements? Yeah, uh, we ha I had, um, so we had also when we are reviewing the 510K and the process itself, and as we discussed also, we said that we have to use uh, some substantial equivalence, so meaning that we have to have some products that are already on the market, uh, similar to your products, so you can use this process. Um, there was also some, some questions about the fact that uh, some, for some products, we are using some substantial equivalence on products that are already on the market. And when our product is on the market, we discover that those products that were substantially equivalent to our product is um, withdrawn from the market because there was maybe some issues but it doesn't impact the products that are currently on the market and that were on the market because of this first product. So is this something you think they will change or is this something that they are monitoring now? 
Well, that is one of the types of, of special controls that the FDA is starting to utilize more is post-market surveillance activities. Okay. And, and, and they're using it in two ways. They're using it in, in that they can ask you for a monitoring program before they clear your device. And then you have, have this monitoring you have to go through and turn in reports every so often. So that's a little bit more of the proactive approach. But then they also have these reactive approaches where they're doing their own analysis of the MOD database um, and adverse events reported to by users in reclassifying products. You know, an example of that is surgical staples that um, it, it, that I believe were class two, but they were 510K exempt for a period of time. And then uh, over the past years, we've had a number of adverse events. And so now the FDA has a whole initiative to look at how to reclassify surgical staples. Um, similarly, I've seen devices uh, just at the end of last year that were seem, seem like they're low risk enough, just like an electrical, like a nerve stimulator, kind of like a TENS unit, but for a particular nerve on your neck or something. External hydrogel pads, you know, yep. really yep. No, no, no safety risk. Yeah. Well, they, they, they divided the intended use for those products, which used to be for insomnia, anxiety, and depression. And they kept insomnia and anxiety as a class 2, 510K, but they turned depression into a class 3 PMA. Oh. So the safety profile does, did not change. So sometimes it's hard from, you know, an outsider to look in and see what the rhyme or reason is to the FDA, but, but they are fairly active in uh, reclassifying products. So when they are doing that, when they are reclassifying products, um, for example, if it was a class one exam and then now it, it becomes a class two and uh, normally you have to have a 510K, um, do they ask those manufacturers to issue a, a new 510K from zero? Yes. Okay. And in this case, they're asking the manufacturers who were registered with these products to submit a PMA for the depression. Okay. So I think at the end, they are not claiming depression at all for, for a certain time. They, they, and that, that is something that the, the manufacturer has to decide based on their, their business plan, especially for something that's low technology and low risk. You know, and the, the cost, the end user cost probably isn't going to change just because they got clearance for depression as far as what they can get reimbursed for, you know. So it might not be worth for them to claim depression anymore. Yeah, because know? they have to go through a PMA. I think it's a, it's a heavy process. So, yeah, I think uh, it, it's, it's the fee, I think it's like $180,000. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, so I think we, we are clear now on the 510K process. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is about, um, about in the U.S., about the standardization so of products. Um, is there some standard existing like harmonized standard that we are using in, in the European Union? Is there the same kind of thing that is existing for people that want to register their products through a 510k so that they can claim that their product is safe or, uh, or uh, performant? Yeah. So there are a, a number of in the FDA, they're called um, recognized consensus standards. And that's kind of similar to the term of harmonized standard in the, the EU. So the recognized consensus standards um, are, are have been recognized as you know proverbial state of the art 
for whatever feature of your product. Now, if they're product specific, the FDA will list them in your product code. Um, you, so you'll know that, okay, there's this, for example, Foley catheter. There's a, there's a recognized consensus standard. If you go to the product code for Foley catheter, it tells you what that standard is. Okay. But where it gets tricky is that you have to know the technological features that are just kind of industries like sterilization, biocompatibility, electrical safety, software. Those things aren't going to be called out within your product code. You have to just know to go to the recognized consensus standard and kind of search by your technology, your product features, that sort of thing. So you have me to make some research. And as, as we've said from the beginning, so uh, the product code will really help you uh, because it, it's really providing all the information needed and those standards will be listed there. So you can use them and check if you are, uh, you are compliant to these standards so that you can claim, uh, claim it on your, on your files. Um, yeah. Okay, so I think it's, uh, it's great. I think it's great help for, for the people that want really to register their products to the US. Um, so just uh, out of that, so how uh, are you helping actually some manufacturers? You, I think you mentioned that you, you are helping some manufacturers about that. So is this something that you are, a lot of companies are asking you? Uh, to do 510Ks, you yeah, mean? Exactly. Yes, yes. So the, the, again, because I specialize in kind of helping the startup and small company, where we typically start is with what I call a regulatory pathway analysis, where we map out all of those things that we learned from the product code, from the predicate comparisons, um, from clinicaltrials.gov, and we kind of get a landscape of the whole regulatory environment and what the challenges might be to a standard 510K process. For most of my clients, I also recommend that they do a pre-sub to start a early a conversation with the FDA about whatever is new or novel about their product. A um, couple of reasons. First off, it's good that, that when you go into submission that it's not the first time FDA has ever heard your name or about your technology. And then secondly, it's good to get buy-in to certain uh, maybe technological features or, or challenges you may have that it's not going to exclude you from being eligible for a 510K. Yeah. So uh, just for the story, I had also, uh, so I had some customers from the US that are also asking me uh, for registration of products in, the, in Europe. Um, and they used this term of pre-submission. Uh, so can we do a pre-submission to the notified body so they can uh, see our pro product and give us some advice of this or that and uh, it's not existing in, in Europe. So yeah. a notified body is not a consulting firm if I can say so they are refusing to get and some pre-submissions. So you are submitting your file, they are reviewing, they ask you the question and, and then and then you have to answer to them. So they were they were they were a bit disappointed and say, oh really it's not existing. So how can we be sure that what we are submitting is correct? And I say yeah it's you cannot <laughs> and yeah, I, I asked this question also to, uh, to Basil Accra, so Chief Sud, uh, on an interview, and he said the same. He said, uh, just send us the file and we'll tell you if you are correct or not. But he, he said, we are not consulting, so we are not yep. giving you an advice on that. Yeah, they consider it consulting and that they aren't allowed to be consultants. So the only way to find out is if they agree or not is to submit it and get a nonconformity. Exactly. <laughs> it's not like they're going to just come back and say, hey, we don't agree with this. Can you just change it? 
You know, it's going to be, you're going to get like a laundry list of nonconformities of things that you probably should have understood and agreed on from the start. Exactly. And I think with the, with the MDR, you have to go back to the queue and waiting for, for your turn to submit everything and to, and to get the answer. So, yeah, it's really different uh, than, than what is happening in, in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, Michelle, one last thing. So uh, we are just uh, to, to give a few words about uh, one group that we are part of, uh, which is the MDG Premium uh, that uh, Joe Hag um, has, has made. Uh, so we have, it's a group of, of people that are really um, meeting together and talking about different subjects. Uh, so we have some course every week where we are uh, discussing and we have uh, usually an expert that is explaining to us. So can you give us more words about this group and what, who is there uh, if, and why people maybe would be interested to join uh, this kind of group? Yeah, so we meet once a week and it's at a, a time that is pretty friendly for, I think, time zones and, and mo most, mostly around the world. Um, we have guest speakers every week from somebody that's a part of the group, mostly, um, that is a technical expert in different fields. So we have had packaging experts, uh, um, Jan Gates from Adept Packaging. We have had Richard Hulhan from Udemed uh, give us the down low about all the changes that are coming with that. Um, we have had Nick Anderson, who's a brilliant healthcare um, economist, and uh, of course Joe fills in and gives us marketing, uh, coaching, and pep talks. And so it's a really great way to get exposed to the industry leaders and to get a a um, world view, I guess, to to the changing regulations of people who are kind of on the front lines that are are trying to figure out these changes alongside industry and find the solutions to give the regulators what they're looking for. Yeah, and during the course, uh, it's not just a, a webinar where you are listening, so you can ask your question. It's really open, so it's, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, and uh, I will put a link on the show notes if you want to be part of, of this group, if you are interested to be part of it, uh, so, uh, so that uh, you can also participate to that and ask your yeah. question, because it's not only experts that are part of it, it's also people that are looking for some answers, so it can be yeah. great if you, are, if you are really interested. Yeah, okay. it's not a presentation at all. It is very much an opportunity to ask your real world questions and, and find solutions or find partners to help you. Yeah, no, it's great. And uh, it's not only quality or regulatory affairs uh, <laughs> focused. Right. Uh, last time, I think yeah, we had Joag that explained to us some marketing tips. Uh, yep. So it was really interesting. So it's also what is interesting is to get some views from other experts in other areas. Uh, about some some medical, but still about medical devices, but on other areas. So it's really uh, right. yeah. it's a full it's a full life cycle approach. Yeah. that's mm -hmm. good. Okay, so Michelle, is there something else from your side? Um, so we we can talk a little bit about the abbreviated five ten Ks a little bit more okay. um, because the FDA has just created like a subset of the abbreviated five ten Ks, which I can just predict is going to be similar to what the EU is going to come out with, similar to the common specifications. Okay. And, and that's where the FDA, at the end of the year, published this new, it's called Safety and Performance Pathway. Um, and, and so it's a subset of the abbreviated 510K. And so far, they have five specific product families. And they dictate intended use. They dictate scope of design features that can be included. And then they itemize 
not only standard by standard, but test by test within that standard. And they itemize all those horizontal standards we talked about, sterilization, biocompatibility. They put it all into one place that, that serves basically as a common specification for all of that type of products. Like if you meet this laundry list of things, that's your checklist for getting this device through the FDA. And I think it's going to be very similar. You know, we don't have any common specifications yet in the MDR, but I think it's going to be very similar to what we see coming out. No, um, Standards aren't, you know, disjointed and separated anymore, but they're kind of, they, they still exist, but they're, they're kind of compiled into one list for a product type. Yeah, and uh, you said that there was there is actually five. Um, is there a kind of a, a plan for FDA to issue more, or is it something that is just uh, um, issued in case of uh, a need of the industry? They are. There's definitely a plan to issue more. I, we don't have visibility to what they're working on next, and all five that they have right now are still in draft, which means they're out for public comment for feedback. And then the FDA will um, incorporate those and, and publish them as a final guidance document. But you know how long it can take a draft to turn into a final document. So yeah. I, I don't want to hold my breath that that, that pathway is going to be viable anytime in the, in the immediate future. Okay, so still more to come than in 2020 about the 510K and more more to, to learn about, about it. Okay, so Michelle, really thank you for your help. Thank you for all the understanding. Uh, I hope uh, that people that are really interested will contact you if they have really a need uh, for more information about 510K uh, so that, uh, that you can help them. Okay, so Michelle, thank you very much and I wish you a nice day. Okay, thanks, Manir. Bye. Enjoyed it. Bye.